0: Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. If you know this podcast, you know that I am slowly, slowly, slowly walking through the Divine Comedy. I'm up to Canto 4 in Inferno, lines 46 to 84 today. If you're just dropping in here, you can listen to this episode, but you might want to think about going back to the beginning, because after all, the Divine Comedy is one big story. And if you go back to the beginning of this podcast, episode one, you can catch right up to this. And today, in Canto 4 of Inferno, lines 46 through 84, we have got Dante to the first actual circle of hell, and he has had already some strange experiences in limbo, and we're going to continue on with him. If you want to see this passage, it lives on my website, markscarbro.com. Without any further ado, let's look at Canto 4, lines 46 through 84. Tell me, my master, tell me, sir. I began because I wanted to be certain of the faith that conquers all error. Did anyone, either by their own merit or someone else's, ever get out of here to be made blessed? He fully understood the true meaning of what I said. So he replied, I was new to this state of being when I saw a powerful entity come down here crowned with the symbols of victory. He pulled out the shade of our first parent. Also the shade of Abel and that of Noah, as well as that of Moses, the lawgiver and obedient one, and the patriarch Abraham and King David, Israel, with his father and sons and Rachel, for whom he did everything, and lots of others. He made all these blessed. Before these, I want you to know, no human soul was ever saved. We didn't stop walking while he spoke, but we went through all of the forest, a forest I mean, of gathered souls. We had not gone on our way very long from where I'd slept when I saw a fire rising triumphant over the hemisphere of darkness. We were a little ways off, but close enough that I could partly discern the worthy people who possess this place. Oh, you who honor knowledge and art. Who are these whose honor is so great that it sets them apart from the rest? And he to me, their honored fame that sounds around you in your life up above wins them grace in heaven, which puts them forward here. As he had finished, I heard a voice saying, honor the highest poet, his shade left and has come back. After the voice had finished and fallen silent, I saw four great shades coming toward us with an appearance neither sad nor happy. Okay, that's where we're gonna leave it. We're gonna leave it with the appearance of these four figures, because there's a lot to unpack here. If you remember in the last time, Virgil had to, well, to use a modern word, he had to come out. He had to say that he was actually here in limbo, that this was his home, and this is where he is suspended. And this place, if you remember, is a place full of sighing babies and men and women. And in the immediately last episode of the podcast, I went all into descriptions of limbo and why limbo is the way it is and limbo of the babies and limbo of the fathers. And that bears on this passage. And we got the harrowing of hell happening here. And there's a lot to unpack. So let's just start them off right up at the beginning. I'm going to divide this passage into four pieces in order to talk about it. Here's the first. Tell me, my master. Tell me, sir. Oh, my Dante. Slow up. Tell me, my master. Tell me, sir. I began because I wanted to be certain of the faith that conquers all error. Did anyone, either by their own merit or someone else's, ever get out of here to be made blessed? He fully understood the true meaning of what I said. I want to stop there. It's actually the first five lines. We'll let Virgil have his true meaning in just a sec. Why is Dante so insistent? Why is this, this tell me, tell me, tell me going on with him? And why, oh, this is a big question. Why does Dante need a classical poet to make him certain of the faith that conquers all error? Why? And why does Dante need a damned classical poet to make him certain of the faith that conquers all error? It's very curious. And let me tell you that these lines have instigated centuries of controversy. What is he hoping to get? Why does he turn to Virgil? Wouldn't you want to turn to, I don't know, St. Paul? Or wouldn't you want to turn to somebody who knew the Bible if you're a Christian? Why turn to Virgil? I've got two answers here, and let me have them. I'll give you both of them. One, this is very ham-handed silly plotting, because really you can say that Dante, the poet, is having trouble getting Virgil to say what he wants Virgil to say. So he gets this question in the pilgrim Dante's mouth to make Virgil give his big answer, which is going to come about yanking out the Israelites up into heaven. And so because he needs Virgil to say that, he's got to goose him. And so he's got to ask a question. If that's the case, then this is a very ham-handed bit. And in fact, for many years, I took this as very clumsy writing. This is one of the reasons I didn't like Canto IV. I thought But This canto exhibited Dante at his clumsiest, and this is one of the places I pointed to. However, let me offer a second way out of this, and a second way that's not just Dante's failing as an artist, shoving words in a character's mouth so he can get words out of another character. Is he asking Virgil, have you ever gotten out of here? After all, Virgil did get out of here. Virgil has been lifted out of limbo. He's been lifted out of limbo and dropped back into that wood back there. I mean, the space between the wood and the mountain where Dante was falling down. So Virgil's been yanked out of limbo and put in another place? Is Dante the pilgrim saying, I know you say this is where you are, because in the last passage we looked at, actually two episodes ago, Virgil did say, I am one of these. So is Dante saying, hey, I know you're one of these in limbo, but did you get lifted out? If that's the case, then it is it is an interesting bit. He's either doing that out of meanness to get Virgil to have to further explicate himself as one of the damned. He's needling him a little or he's a little confused and maybe it's that. Maybe the pilgrim's a tad confused because it says he, Virgil, understood the true meaning of what I said. So is that the deal? There's an undertow here underneath this that's saying, now wait a minute, this is limbo, but you got out and you came to that wood over there and we've been walking up to this point. So how can you be here, but also with me? Is that it? Then the earlier line I wanted, I began because I wanted to be certain of the faith that conquers all error. Then if that's the case... He's quibbling. He's doubting. He's looking at, wait a minute, I thought I knew how limbo worked. And yet here's this guy that's supposed to be in limbo. Yet here he is walking with me. And there he was back there with the wood and the mountain and all that. I mean, are you here? Are you really here? And maybe that's what that means. He fully understood the true meaning of what I said, because this is Virgil's reply on the second part of the passage. I was new to this state. No funny voices. I was new to this state of being when I saw a powerful entity come down here crowned with the symbols of victory. Notice that Virgil doesn't name Jesus. He doesn't say when Christ came down. He doesn't seem to understand who that is. St. Augustine, Long before the comedy had made a claim that those at the last judgment would not be able to actually see Jesus in his exalted divinity, that they won't be able to see it because they're the damned and the damned can't understand the dual nature of Jesus as, you know, both human and divine, and they won't be able to see the divinity because they're damned. They can only see the humanity there may be a little bit of that running under this passage because Virgil doesn't seem to know who this is. I was new to the city of being when I saw a powerful entity, a, a, a mighty one. I translated an entity just so it would be a little stranger. It's more like when I saw a mighty one, but I liked adding the word entity there to my translation because it just made it seem a little weirder, which is what I wanted. It is weird. I saw a powerful one come down here crowned with the symbols of victory. Virgil focuses on the laurels or, you know, whatever the signs of victory are, I take it, the laurels that are on the head of this powerful figure. Notice where Virgil's focus is versus what's really going on. What's really going on is Christ is harrowing hell. This is a Christian doctrine that is scattered throughout small passages in the New Testament, Ephesians four nine and others, it becomes slowly becomes codified into church doctrine. And that is this notion that Jesus descends from the cross spiritually. I mean, his body goes to the tomb, but he comes off the cross as a spirit. He goes down to hell. He, as I said last time in the last episode about limbo, wages war with Satan or just pulls them out of his own accord. This is because the theology has gotten worked out such that Only through Christ's death and resurrection in Christian theology can you be saved. Well, if that's the truth, what about all the people who lived before Christ? What happened to them? So you've got to do something with them. So you put them in this airport waiting lounge and you wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. And then Christ, the phrase is, harrows hell, that he descends into hell and pulls them up. This is, if you know anything about the Christian tradition, even in the creed, he descended into hell. So he pulled out the shade of our first parent, Virgil says. That would be. Adam, you'll note that Adam is not in hell. You might expect Adam who ate the fruit in the story and so caused the fall of humanity. You might expect him to be in hell, but he's not. So this figure, the powerful one, or we know this figure as Jesus, pulled out the shade of our first parent, Adam, also the shade of Abel, Adam's kid, and of Noah, the guy with the ark and the flood, as well as that of Moses, the lawgiver and obedient one. There's a little quibble right there. Let me just say Uh, Moses obedient, calling Moses obedient is a little bit of a quibble because there is that moment in Torah where Moses strikes the rock for water out of anger with his staff, and God tells Moses that he's lost his temper, and therefore God says, You're not allowed to enter the promised land. Calling him here the obedient one seems to gloss over that problem with Moses and his, his disobedience, his petulance at the rock, but it seems to just give Moses a kind of halo. Lawgiver and obedient one, patriarch Abraham, King David. Israel with his father and sons. That's, that's, in other words, Jacob and Isaac and Joseph and all of those 12 tribes of Israel kids and Rachel for whom he, and he means he or Jacob, for whom he did everything. Rachel, one of the two wives of Jacob. Well, I had more than that, but okay. Rachel, one of the two women for whom he worked from Laban, Rachel and Leah. It's interesting that Leah is not mentioned, but okay. Rachel, for whom he did everything, is Rachel mentioned here because Rachel occurred back in Canto 2 when Beatrice said, I was sitting with Rachel. I don't know, maybe. And lots of others. Well, wait till you find out how many others. We got to get to Paradiso for that. But wait till you find out how many others. Rachel for me did everything and lots of others. He made them all these blessed. Before these, I want you to know no human soul was ever saved. Is that Virgil putting the nail in the coffin to say yes? I am stuck here in limbo. It could, in fact, be, and in fact, those lines, before these, I want you to know, just that Virgil tries to make it so insistent. No human soul was ever saved. It may be that's the understood, the full meaning of what the pilgrim is asking. Dante, it seems to me, the poet, is of double minds about all this. But we're going to get to it. So let's pass on to the third passage. We didn't stop walking while he spoke, but went through all of the forest. A forest, I mean, of gathered souls. Oh, it's so strange and dreamy and odd. These gathered souls, these sighing babies and sighing men and women surrounding them. But also, just think, we went all through the forest. This is a reference back to Canto 1. This is a forest midway through the journey of our life i woke up in a dark wood oh how hard it was to say how dark that wood was this is a this is a wood too this is another kind of forest not a scary forest although there is a lot of sighing and i would be kind of freaked out in it but not a scary dangerous forest this seems a regenerated forest how can it be regenerated in hell how is that even possible it's not possible Oh, but maybe it is. Let's read on. We had not gone on our way very long from where I'd slept when I saw a fire rising triumphant over the hemisphere of darkness. Okay, two things in this third section of the passage. One, this is the only place in hell where light seems to overcome darkness, this is the only time it will happen in hell we <laughs> get up to Purgatorio and up into Paradiso, up into those pieces of the poem, wow, light is going to be so bright it's going to knock you out. But here, this is the only place in Inferno where fire or light seems to overcome the darkness in some way. And rising triumphant, such a funny word to use for the first circle of hell. Rising triumphant, it's strange. Second thing, remember earlier back in Canto 2, when Virgil is having his conversation with Beatrice. And Beatrice says, you know, the," why, Virgil says, how can you come here? And Beatrice says, these flames don't bother me at all. And I said to you, maybe she just didn't see Virgil where he is because there aren't any flames in limbo. All right, you could say to me, but wait a minute, it says right here, when I saw a fire rising triumphant over the hemisphere of darkness. And you said in that earlier podcast that there were no flames around Virgil, and maybe that's why she didn't see him. Maybe we can think that the, the save don't really see the damn. Okay, here's the explanation. Back then, she uses the word fiamma, which is uh, fires, like, you know, fires in your fireplace, lots of flames licking up. Here, the word used is un foco, a, a fire, a light, a single light, like a torchlight, like a fire that's used to light a path. This fire is not the fire of damnation, fiamma. Instead, this is more like how you would illuminate a giant chamber. You would carry a torch in. So yes, there is fire in limbo, It's, but it's not punishing fire. Instead, it's weirder than that it's illuminating fire. How can you be illuminated in hell? How does that work exactly? I mean, isn't hell a place of damnation? And how can it be triumphant? How can can light triumph over the darkness, given all that Christian symbolism writing right there? How can that work? Well, it works in a very special way. And here we come to the difficulty, the fourth part of the passage. We were still a little ways off, but close enough that I could partly discern the worthy people who possessed this place. This was theirs. It's kind of weird. No one really elsewhere possesses a piece of hell. But uh, this seems to be more like a home, a place to be. Oh, you who honor knowledge and art. And this voice comes out of nowhere. It's Dante the Pilgrim speaking— but it's not attributed, so it feels kind of dislocated. O you who honor knowledge and art, science and art in the original. That is the accumulation of knowledge and then the ability to express it. O you, and it's Virgil he's talking to, who honor knowledge and art. Who were these whose honor is so great that it sets them apart from the rest? You should know, you're already hearing me translate it this way, that the word honor in various forms, adjective forms, noun forms, various ways that the word honor occurs occurs seven times in just under 30 lines in the original in this passage. The word honor is thick here. In fact, it's the thickest single reference of a word inside of all of comedy. In mm, 29 lines, the word honor or one of its forms occurs seven times here. What's so big about these people? Oh, you who honor, Virgil, knowledge and art. Who are these whose honor is so great that it sets them apart from the rest? And he to me, there honored fame that sounds around you in your life above wins them grace in heaven which puts them forward here whoa wild remember when beatrice appears to virgil in 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 limbo in canto 2 and She says, if you'll go rescue Dante, I'll mention your name to God and, you know, I'll sing your praises in heaven. And I did that big song and dance of, well, what good does that do, Virgil? Who cares? He's damned. Who cares whether she mentions his name to God? Well, apparently it does a little good. Apparently it calls you out from the herd of all the other babies and mm, pagan men and women before. Before Jesus was born who are floating around here sighing apparently there's a way that heaven honors you wins them grace in heaven which puts them forward here and as he finished I heard a voice and we don't know who says this and ah, oh, believe me hundreds of years of commenta- commentary to say who says this and it's unclear but somebody says honor the highest poet, his shade left and has come back. So somebody who's approaching them calls out that Virgil is the highest poet and his shade has left and come back. You know, it's it's kind of a Prodigal Son reference. You know, the, the, that, that which was lost is now found. Honor the highest poet, his shade left and has come back. And after the voice had finished and fallen silent, I saw four great shades coming toward us with an appearance neither side, sad nor happy because that would be what they would be in limbo. Neither sad nor happy. This, again, this kind of state of... Mm, Eternal unrest of having your desires not fulfilled. Okay, let me just say who these are, even though it carries on into the next episode of the podcast. These are great classical poets who are approaching them. They are these great poets who are calling out to Virgil, you know, one of our own has come back, and Virgil's standing there and they're winning grace in heaven and putting them forward. And I think that Dante the Poet's ambivalence toward these figures is pronounced. I told you last time that Dante, one of the things that's so strange about Dante the Poet is he puts his poetic forefathers in hell. He does. And yet at the same time, he gives them light, triumphant light light. Yet at the same time, he puts them forward. Yet at the same time, he says they win grace in heaven. There's a huge amount of commentary on this. Lots of people who say, oh, look, Dante's humanism is in full display because he takes these classical poets like Virgil and, you know, he doesn't make them suck down in mud and mire and muck the way hell is going to be. It's not like that. They live in this kind of place where there's light and it's not so bad and you're sighing and wait till a couple future episodes, there's a cast and fountains and you know limbo's kind of nice it's it's a really nice place others point to this passage and say listen dante put his poetic fathers in hell there's no question about these people They're in hell. This may be the best humans can do on their own. Remember, I equivocated on this on the mountain in the first canto. I said there's going to be another place where maybe it's the best humans can do. This this is it. People say, ah, Limbo, this is the best people can do on their own. It's Virgil, and it's the classical poets. It's going to be a lot of them, not just these four. We're going to get a whole list of people later. So it's the best humans can do under their own steam, but... Dante, the austere Christian, it's still hell. My answer to this is why do you have to choose? Can't it be both? Can't Dante the poet's ambivalence be expressed in the passage. He both as a Christian feels that these figures would in fact be in hell because they're not Christians and yet at the same time they are his forefathers, his poetic forebearers. So can't it be both? Does it? Do we have to make a choice? It's like the church. Oh, how can I say this? the church put the church, the fathers of the church in hell. And I don't mean the fathers like St. Aquinas and St. Augustine and all that. I mean the fathers of the church as in all those Old Testament figures because in Christian theology, all those are the run-up to the church, David and Moses and Ezekiel and Isaiah. You know, it's all the big run-up to the church. This is part of the problem of trying to to grow one religion out of another. But let's set that aside for a minute and just say the church, in order to explain its own do- in doctrine of redemption, put them in hell. In the same way, Dante has put his fathers in hell. And in the same way, in some way, he's definitely pulling Virgil out of hell. But by mentioning them, by honoring them, by giving them this place where light, the fire, is rising triumphant over the darkness, by giving this, and then later, it's going to get crazy with castles and fountains and so nice, by giving them all of this, Dante is harrowing his own poetic father's out of where his theology would put them. Can't Dante exist like we, Dante the poet, exist like we all exist as a mass of contradictions, things that we want to believe, but things that at the same time seem too hard to believe, or things that we want to hold true, and then other things that we want to hold true that are contradictory to them. Can't it be both? I feel like it can, and I feel like this this canto not the whole poem, but this canto is trying to have it both ways, and it's part of my dissatisfaction with it or my former dissatisfaction with it. I used to not like this canto at all because I thought, ugh, Dante, damn them to hell or give them all the honor and light you want to give them and stick them up in some place with the neutrals or some place that's truly limbo that's not in hell in a traditional sense of limbo. You know, Dante, make up your mind. Now I'm older, And I realize that sometimes you don't make up your mind because sometimes life is deeply ambiguous. And maybe that was part of my dissatisfaction with this canto. I couldn't see it as a place where the poet is equivocating and pulling and pulling it himself in the same ways that I do, in the same ways that I approach politics or economics or religion, pulling in the ways that I am so adamantly non-religious, and yet here I am doing a podcast (laughs) that is about a guy who thinks he's the greatest Christian that ever lived and is going to walk across the new universe to explain it. Just that, the contradiction. It's human. It may be Limbo. It may be Dante. It may be me. But I have a dude, just a little hunch. It may be all of us. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast of Walking with Dante. Hey, if you don't mind, would you try to rate the podcast? And if you're listening to this on Apple or Google, would you drop a comment? It would really help me if you would drop a comment and say that you enjoyed the podcast. Say <laughs> so you didn't enjoy it. <laughs> Any comment would help. That would be terrific. And I hope you subscribe so that you can catch the next episode I of mean, Inferno. We're going to still be in limbo next time, but it's going to get weirder and even more ambivalent, because how else could it go when you try to put your poetic forbearers into hell? See you next time.